Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's on! Hi, everyone. From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is a woman past her prime. Sorry, Don Lemon, but that was pretty bad. Just kidding. I'm not really kidding. That was bad. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher, and I am in my prime. And I'm Naima Raza, and I'm in my prime, too. I cannot believe he made those remarks about Nikki Haley. I can. We rarely have to rush to Nikki Haley's defense. And yet here we are. You know what? <laughs> it was really something. And then over on Fox, the five, whatever, they were saying mm-hmm. even worse things that women are in their prime in their teens. The whole thing. Like, literally, do I want to hear men say when women are in their prime? I do not. Speaking of Fox News, by the way, I've been pouring over these. Yeah documents, these redacted documents from the Dominion and Fox News lawsuit. They all lied. And the only one that comes off well is when we've interviewed Brett Baer, who's trying very hard. Yeah. There's interesting text from Tucker and his producer where his producer is kind of talking about this hard needle to thread and the coverage. And then Tucker is saying that Trump is really good at destroying things. And he says, quote, he's the undisputed world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. Oh, God, what a cynical fuck. Yes. One of the most cynical fucks on the planet. Thank you. But today we're talking about defense tech. Yeah. Not about unidentified aerial objects. Were you sad they were neither spy balloons nor aliens, Kara? I thought it was ridiculous. We're sending those Sidewinder missiles to shoot down like what are essentially weather balloons or something. Hobbyist devices they seem to be at this point. Oh, my God. We're so embarrassing on so many levels. Um, You know, they should pay a lot of attention to what's floating over our skies, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, know what they actually are. The White House has said they just recently increased the capacity for those sensors, so they have greater sensitivity, but yes, they can't discern exactly what they are yet. Doesn't make me feel safe. I mean, poor hobbyists. They're so earnest. They're just sending these, you know, balloons in to research the weather, and they get shot down. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) well. Sorry, hobbyists. Anyway, our guest today is Trey Stevens. He's a co-founder and the executive chairman of Andril Industries, a defense tech company that's building autonomous systems that operate in the air, sea, and land. In some way, it's kind of artificial intelligence warfare. Yeah, they're trying to modernize defense, essentially. That's their that's their marketing pitch, essentially. Our defense is pretty crude, as we can see from the balloon situation debacle. <laughs> you know what? If you're a balloon, don't go up against us. Yeah. So I should disclose that Trey and I were classmates at Georgetown and we're friends, but that does not mean he gets a pass. You're going to ask him some hard questions, including about Andrew's surveillance wall at the border with Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't even pitch him for the show. You did. You reached out I to did. him. I did. I did. I reached out to him because I had read a story of his. I think he wrote a piece and I thought it was really smart, the idea of where we are in defense. And defense sort of is stuck in a, um, just the way healthcare, it's, it hasn't been as affected by technology as it could be. Um, and I was I was very interested um, in learning about autonomous drones, unmanned submarines. You know, it's a, just a new kind of defense company. After we graduated, I remember Trey went to the intelligence apparatus. I think his biography says an unnamed intelligence agency. Yeah. But he quickly left for Palantir. And then from there, he joined forces with Peter Thiel, someone you've reported on for a long yeah. time at Founders Fund. And this company, Andril, is backed by Thiel. Mm-hmm. It was founded by Palmer Lucky of Oculus fame, someone you've interviewed before. So Teal, Palmer, many people you know. Do you want to regale us with any stories Well, here? I mean, you know, Oculus was bought by Facebook and then he left. Um, it was unclear why he left. Some say it was because of his Trump support. I don't know if that's the case. But nonetheless, he sold his company 
there was a big lawsuit, if you recall, around how they made Oculus. And he left and he started this other thing. He's a very inventive uh, entrepreneur, uh, Palmer Lucky is. And so I, I've been very interested in the things he's making. He's obviously in that group of Peter Thiel and they, you know, they create all these companies. And despite disagreements with them, they are very entrepreneurial. Trey is the chairman. He's looking after a lot of the operations of the company and kind of grown up like Eric Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And um, there seems to be this big Silicon Valley DOD love fest that's its oldest time. Yeah, it's for a long time, actually. Eric Schmidt, in fact, has been very involved in defense. Well, there's a committee uh, mm-hmm. that the Defense Department had that um, I think Ash Carter got him to be on. And there's always been an interest in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. largely because it's a big moneymaker. And a lot of companies that you think of as consumer companies are actually quite involved. Amazon, right. around border stuff, Salesforce, mm-hmm. um, and Google, until there was some pushback internally. You know, that's where the big money is. And so they're eyeing, uh, trying to figure out how to do defense better. And of course, they say they're trying to save money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the most famous of all, obviously, is SpaceX, which does an enormous amount of work for the government um, around NASA and putting up rockets and putting up uh, satellites, et cetera. Yeah. And Eric Schmidt is backing a, quote, perfect AI warfighting machine, a company sure. called Astari that he's working on these days. Um, and I think there's this like lore of him visiting the Pentagon and the aughts and looking around and saying, hey, everything you guys are doing is from 70s and 80s yeah. internet and you have to learn from Silicon Valley. And so do you think that's true? Like there's a need for DC to be so reliant on the Valley for tech? Well, they'll have to be, they've been reliant on lots of big companies as Beltway bandits, they used to be called. Um, <laughs> you know, I just think they're there for the money. And most of government is very antiquated compared to consumers. And so defense, where all the money is, as I said, is an area of great uh, interest. And, and that's why they're here. Well, it's a healthy way to build your business if you can have a single buyer at very high margin and prices uh, to subsidize your R&D. That's true. Andrew is definitely swimming in government contracts and we have lots of questions for Trey. So let's take a quick break and come back with that interview. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what could otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Incorporating AI into your business can be a delicate balance between speed and intelligence. That's why you might want to consider the Claude 3 family models from Anthropic for your enterprise AI. Haiku is their light and fast model, Opus is their most powerful model capable of high order thinking, and Sonnet is the best combination of both speed and intelligence. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Welcome, Trey. I'm so glad you agreed to talk to me. And so I want to get started uh, with Anderil. Um, it comes from Lord of the Rings. It's a sword. Is that correct? Totally. Anderil is a, it's a great word that is co-located in Lord of the Rings. It refers to the flame of the West. So it's this like idea of defender of the free people. And we, we thought that was a, a really cool kind of like overlap. And the company is really a defense technology company focused on building 
oftentimes software-defined, hardware-enabled capabilities for the United States and our allies and partners, um, largely focused on autonomy. So how do sure. we get... So, so more modern, the technification of defense. So you're trying to create the modern defense firm, correct? I mean, is that the idea, is that defense had not been updated, essentially, even though it's, again, highly technical in many ways? Yeah. You know, we we had this kind of like a 50-year era where the defense community was leading research and development in the United States. And a lot of those technologies ended up uh, flowing into the commercial space, whether it's, you know, the internet or GPS or, you know, radar uh, technologies. And, you know, when the Cold War ended, uh, we lost a lot of that urgency, rightly so. Um, And one of the results of that is that the technologies that matter largely for our future um, are software problems. However, a lot of the people that you need to build those technologies had gone into the the tech world. They'd gone into the you know the internet. They had gone into you know the big tech companies, and um, the DoD lost access to the people that they needed to to work on those missions. Right. So it's the consumer products going towards defense rather than vice versa. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, you would have a lot of shared crossover between those two things. Um, However, in the last, really, 25, 30 years, there hasn't been a whole lot of crossover from commercial into defense. It's been largely defense doing defense things, the commercial world moving much, much faster, and defense as a byproduct of that falling behind very rapidly. And and that's the the gap that um, Andrew is really trying to solve, is how do we how do we figure out what those core problem sets are, those core gaps, and then build technology that we can actually transition into service? It's also good business. This is where so much money is spent, right? And often, as much, very much like the rocket industry when SpaceX moved in, it was sort of a it's a sort of a honeypot of money for yeah. For I mean, if you can figure out how to do it, I think that unfortunately the like highway of doing business with defense is littered with bodies of dead companies that didn't survive. Um, you know, I think. You know, we're really in a position at Andrew where we have like two kind of value adds. One value add is we're building tech, oftentimes that software-defined tech that matters. But we also have a team of people who have a great deal of experience doing work with the DoD and have figured out the pathways that are required um, to actually get in and, you know, be in service to the warfighter. So um, those two things are really necessary, and they usually don't exist in the startup ecosystem. So you focus on autonomous systems. Are we talking about military drones, surveillance, autonomous systems? How would you explain it? Yeah, there there are a lot of drones uh, that have existed since even the Cold War. The the plane that ended up being the Predator was actually developed in the in the eighties, and uh, these are really remotely piloted systems. Um, so they're they're manned in in actuality uh, by a person with a joystick. You know, even if they're thousands of miles away, um, and and these are incredibly expensive to manage and maintain. Um, it, this isn't like you know one pilot can control dozens of aircraft. And so when we talk about autonomy, we're talking about real autonomy. Like, how do we get? kind of a mission manager to control a bunch of assets in a battle space and be able to make decisions very efficiently and effectively. Ideally, where those end defectors, the drones, whether they're planes or ground vehicles or underwater vehicles, are low cost enough as to be attritable. So you're not putting people in harm's way. You're lowering the cost of the taxpayer if those systems are lost, which gives you a, a very different strategic approach to engaging in conflict. And ideally, you know, you're creating an ethical good by making it much less likely that humans lose life when some activity is is necessary. And less complex, presumably. And using technologies that consumers use regularly, like a lot of things exactly. which hasn't hasn't moved into defense. So your first piece of tech was Lattice OS. Talk about that. Gathering data. Yeah. Targets. What was it doing? So Lattice is the software that sits behind all of our products. You can kind of think of it as a computer vision command and control platform um, that has flight controls for aircraft. It has, you know, ground vehicle controls for ground vehicles. um, And it does all of the taking the sensors, fusing that data, and then helping the, uh, the system make decisions about that data with a human kind of guiding that interaction over time. So Lattice is present in everything that we build. Mm-hmm. And how much is the tech doing versus a person? You said you had one person running a drone. And again, we've seen that, whether it's depicted in movies or whatever. Yeah. What is the role of the person when you're thinking of these of these things is minimizing the person, right? Correct? 
Uh, I wouldn't put it that way. I think the person is still a critical element in all of the activity that we're engaged in in the Defense Department and in our other national security apparatus. Um, I think the the key thing is that um, you're enabling people to do what people are really, really good at, and you're enabling machines to do what machines are really, really good at. And that's what we're trying to optimize. We're trying to create the most efficient pathway for optimizing the skill set of the people who are responsible for those systems. But the goal would be to remove people as much as possible, correct? Uh, I mean... I think I think it's optimizing or the people differently. Use of people, yeah, the yeah, that, use that's of probably people. a fair way to put it. It's getting people out of doing things that people shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. because either they're bad at it or they could get hurt. Correct? Yeah, I think those are probably the the two biggest things. What we usually call this internally is dull, dirty, dangerous. We want people to be removed from those to the extent possible. Dirty meaning munitions, right? Dirty could mean a, a lot of things. It could mean like putting people in a position where they have to make decisions that you don't want them making. It could be putting them in really uh, like bad spaces for their mental health. Like, you know, you don't want like a person to be cleaning up a toxic waste problem. You really want that handled by robots or machines. So there's a, a number of different definitions you could apply there. Um, last fall, you announced a, a first weapon, um, the Altius drone into a loitering munition. Talk about that. That's is that, that then these these drones pick their targets or how does that work? Because one of the issues I remember when they were having people man drones and doing bombing is the is the mental effect of doing that from from afar, which has been an issue since they had bombs dropping out of planes. I'm presuming. Sure. But talk about this drone, this loitering munition. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming that when you're using the word weapon, you're referring to like things that explode. Is that kind of the direction you're taking it? Yes. Yes. But this Altius drone, you you were this was your first weapon that you announced. Yeah. I mean, we've we built a lot of systems in the past that have been used for tactical purposes. Um, I think the Altius announcement is the first that we've made where something explodes. Uh, but those those two things aren't necessarily the way that I would define weapon, right? There are a lot of weapons that don't explode. Um, but th- this one does happen to to explode. Um, so yeah, we we are working on this platform um, called Altius. Um, there are different versions of it. These are used oftentimes as air launch effects. So it's like you have a helicopter; it can shoot a drone out of a tube, and that drone can be used to extend its range. It could be used to do surveillance or reconnaissance to make sure that the helicopter or the, whatever aircraft is launching it isn't putting itself in danger. Um, and you know, the loading munition part of this is making it possible for an operator. Um, to be more precise and, and discriminate with a strike where a strike is needed. So one of the things you might have seen, you, you might be seeing in Ukraine is the use of dumb artillery. So you're shooting mortars, you know, these things are like pocking farmland, they're killing civilians. Um, we want to put uh, munitions on target um, where we know that the target is the adversary, and it's not going to lead to unnecessary casualties. And so it allows you as an operator to see what it is that you're going after and then convert that air launch effect from its surveillance purposes into um, something that can be used to uh, to deliver an impact um, in a way that you would normally be doing in a much less precise so way. So this is a person doing it using a drone precisely, not that AI has to be trained to say this is a dangerous thing. It's something that a person at the other end decides. Correct. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah, you want a human in the loop on these decisions. Um, I think I think they're, you know, the conversation around autonomous weapons is is obviously very complicated. Absolutely. And I, I think the the technologies that we're building are making it possible for humans to make the right decisions about these things, so that there is an accountable, responsible party in the loop um, for for all decisions that could involve lethality. Obviously. Well, the fear the fear being that. AI will make a mistake just the way there's the controversies around AI in judging or, you know, in court cases or things yeah. like that. That's, Human that's judgment the, is incredibly important. We don't want to we don't want to remove that. Or just as flawed. You know, if you listen to Daniel Kahneman, he's like, well, AI is a little better than humans because humans can make 60 different decisions based on almost no information. The place where people get hung up on that, though, is that they want, they want, they want someone to be responsible. And so humans might make mistakes, but we believe in the concept of being able to hold humans responsible for those mistakes. If a machine makes a mistake, like, who do you blame for the mistake? Do you blame the people that manufactured the system? You know, there's all sorts of questions that come up there. Is there a, you know, a deadening when you put AI in charge of so much stuff? I mean, you just build these things, presumably, but is there a thought in the defense community if you start to really make it into a game or feel like a game in some way that there's a problem with that? Or is it, well, we're going to save lives by doing this? 
No, I think there's a great deal of thought that goes into this. And it's certainly something that I don't feel absolved from personally, even. Like, it's really important to have responsible conversations and dialogue about ethics and, you know, how the things that we're building impact what other people are building and how that impacts our adversaries. And, you know, one of the core reasons why we started Andril is we believe that, um, you know, you can lean very heavily into just war theory um, to conduct conflict in the most ethical way possible. Wait, is that St. Augustine, Just War? Is it St. Augustine? Yeah, St. Right? Augustine was uh, a lot of the early writings I on Just War. I remember my Georgetown There you go. Courses. You got it. <laughs> One great example of this is um, the Zawahiri raid in Kabul a few months back. Um, that was done with a... Um, with what's called a, a Gensu missile. It's non-explosive. It's, uh, it's, you know, completely dull kinetic. But we were able to take out Zawahiri, and no one else was even injured in that attack with a completely non-explosive guided munition. Um, and I think once you get to the point where you can be incredibly accurate, you can be incredibly precise, um, you, get, you get more of a deterrent impact on the conventional side of the equation. We all understand nuclear deterrence and how that works from a strategic perspective. But if you can get to the point where you can conventionally um, deliver outcomes on the battlefield at very low cost, um, you can deter the adversary from engaging in conflict to begin with. And that's the sort of advantage that I think is important for us to try to build. All right, St. Augustine aside, um, one of the things that happened, though, these, these, these AI, especially technologies, become very powerful. We can see how it revolutionizes search. Um, talk about how it does that with defense and how we fight wars. If that's your goal, you had written last year, today there's more AI in a Tesla than in any U.S. military vehicle. Agreed. A better computer vision in your Snapchat app than any system the Defense Department owns. What's the, the problem? What is it they just don't want to use Snapchat in the Defense Department or what? <laughs> I definitely don't think they should be using Snapchat no, in the Defense Department. No, they should but, be using um, TikTok, but go ahead. Obviously, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I think... You know, th there's a lot of problems here. Part of it is just the incentive structure. So if you look at, you know, when the Cold War ended, the Secretary of Defense got together the defense industry and what became colloquially known as the Last Supper. And he effectively said, like, look, defense spending is going down. Everybody needs to consolidate or die. Um, and so he encouraged all these companies to do exactly what they did, which is they, you know, pared themselves down and they built an incentive structure that made it possible to maintain nearly perfect competition between the large primes, uh, which is what we call the big defense contractors. They're called primes. And so we get in, got in this situation where everything was a, an exquisite bespoke system. Everything was like built from scratch. And then you had companies like SpaceX that come up and they say, we've built a commercial launch system that is a fraction of the cost of what it's being offered by the United Launch Alliance, the group of the primes that do this together. And they don't get access to the contracts because the DOD has like sort of tacitly agreed with the primes that they won't allow new entrants as long as this like nearly perfect competition where it's basically an index fund of US GDP. Like these companies grow very slowly over time tracking GDP. They're gonna distribute revenue as evenly as they possibly can, but we get no innovation as a result. And so we, we're kind of stuck in the middle of this right now. So so you worked in Washington. I wanna step back at you for a while in intelligence. It, what pushed you into the private sector? You know, the primary thing for me was being incredibly frustrated with bureaucracy. I am, I am not well built for bureaucracy, unfortunately. Um, and I think I got to the point where I thought that I could better utilize my skills um, working at a tech company. So my first job out of the DoD was working for Palantir. At the time, I had, I had no idea how a startup worked. Um, I had no idea that there were things— Why Palantir? Why did you pick Palantir? Um, I actually saw a demo um, while I was working with the government, and um, I sort of pushing that we should we should get this software because it was really incredible, and just kind of ran into a brick wall on this, and ended up uh, you know talking to the Palantir team and saying, hey, I hope you're not pushing too hard because it's not going anywhere, and they kind of laughed and said, you should just come join us. So I didn't know anything about startups at the time, and really kind of got a front row seat to you know how you do innovation in the defense world. Um, you know, through all of the challenges that we're now working through again at Anderil. Palantir did different things, um, software around all kinds of different things. Different technology approach, similar problem set. Although I would argue it's even harder to sell software as software to the DoD than it is to sell software inside of hardware. Like but They love hardware. It's kind of... They love hardware. It's like, you know, Gavin Belfson's box from HBO's Silicon Valley. But to talk about that idea, pretty significant disadvantages that come with AI's facial recognition software. 
It's been found to discriminate against people of color. It's better at recognizing male faces and female faces. ChatGPT came up with answers that reflect ethnic and racial bias around, largely because of the data. When, when it goes from the private sector to the public sector, is that an issue or their problems translate to defense tech? And do you, how do you think about solving those? Yeah, I would, I would say there are two answers to this. First is that there are a lot of ethical challenges in this. Like, I happen to not believe that you can deploy facial recognition ethically. So we don't do it. We won't do it. It doesn't really make sense. And so I think that's the first answer. The second answer is that I'm actually not certain that working, like building things custom inside of the government leads to more ethical outcomes. Uh, imagine, like, you're basically asking people who aren't good at these things to do something. And the belief is somehow that they're going to be better and more ethical with it. I'm not sure. It's, it, I think they're probably just going to be worse. But they do have the public interest at heart versus a profit interest or a carelessness that I think infects Silicon Valley in some ways. So how are you going to be better or more ethical at it? And what systems do you have place in Anderol if you're designing it for the government? First and foremost, like, you know, companies with a mission orientation towards the DOD are oftentimes made up of government people. So, of course, there's like a profit motive and that all exists. But I also think that no one would be at Anderil if they didn't believe in the mission. Like, we make that very clear to our to our employees and they, they are motivated to do the right things. Does that make us invincible and, you know, immune to critique? Of course not. Like, I, I feel, as I said before, I feel a deep responsibility towards getting the ethical piece of this right, being open to feedback, making changes as needed. Um, and so what makes me think that we'd be better at it? I trust the people that I work with. And I believe that we have a open and frequent dialogue about this. And I think there are probably other places that do that as well. You, one of your first big projects with the U.S. was at the U.S.-Mexico border, creating a virtual wall. Um, the physical walls, ladders tend to work on them. Um, Anderol uses these things called sentry towers. Um, it's essentially a camera on a pole, a smart wall aimed south, essentially, to seal the border through innovation. Talk a little bit about this, because everyone's looked, not to say that anything that's happened before has worked, because it hasn't. Talk about what this project and how you think it's different. So, you know, border security is a really important bipartisan issue. And I think this is something that, you know, uh, President Biden talked about after his election. You know, it's important because you need to know what's happening. And there's a big bifurcation between the concepts of border security and the concepts of immigration policy. And, you know, I think that from a technology perspective, again, this goes to like, how can we most efficiently use people? It's been well reported that CBP, the Customs and Border Protection, uh, is massively uh, underserved. Like they cannot hire agents fast enough. They're, you know, they have thousands and thousands of job postings that they haven't filled. Um, and we need them to be able to respond to humanitarian crises, to um, apprehensions of criminal activity that's happening, to, you know, just provide them with the data they need to do that. Um, and that's what, you know, Biden is talking about when he talks about the smart wall. Um, it's advanced technologies that are used to give our limited number of agents the information they need to do their jobs as effectively as possible. Well, you presumably would want less agents and better detection, right? Yeah. You wanted to tell them, you know, this is what we see. Not to the level of like facial ID, but we want to tell them like there are people. This is how many people are crossing. This is where they're crossing. This is their trajectory. This is where you need to go in order to do something about it. And, and it goes directly to these agents, correct? Rather than through the system of where you have 24-7 agents watching cameras, essentially. Yeah, totally. No one is watching the camera feeds. They're just getting notifications on their, you know, their laptops, their mobile devices, whatever, that tells them there's something happening you can make a decision about whether or not you want to do something about that. Some critics say you only push migrants to different, more potentially dangerous spot along the border. Is it a, is it a full border solution or a somewhere border solution? Because it's a long border. Yeah, it is a long border. The southwest border in particular is, and, is a and long border. And by the border. way, Mexico still is not going to pay for it. But go ahead. <laughs> That's right. Mexico is not paying for the towers. <laughs> that is correct. Um, you know, we don't have complete coverage for sure. Um, there's still there's still a lot that needs to be filled. And so, um, you know, the the goal is like we need to shut down the corridors um, so we know what's going on um, and uh, do that in the most ethical way possible. You wouldn't put a tower like next to an urban environment. 
you don't get any information. It's like, yeah, there are people, right, because it's an urban environment. It doesn't make sense in that, that world. It probably also doesn't make sense in a world in which the viewshed is incredibly limited. Maybe it's like widely forested or there's huge like mountains and valleys that are really hard to see through. And so is it practical to like get entire border coverage with uh, Anderil's sentry towers? Probably not. Um, there are probably other technologies you would want to mix in to do that. Um, but we are certainly very happy about our partnership with um, the Biden administration, with Customs and Border Protection, and the agents there that are leveraging our technology where they can as effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's it's whatever that is. It's not it, There aren't any special problems when you have a digital solution, presumably. No. And you know, a lot of this is just like, you know, when we started the company in 2017, um, a lot of the stuff that we did was like only recently possible, um, like getting um, solar power to where it could be efficient enough to do a lot of um, uh, very remote deployments of tech. Um, the NVIDIA GPUs, like getting edge processing um, good enough, uh, low power enough, inexpensive enough to be able to deploy at volume. Um, and so the ability to, to build these at very, very low cost rather than doing like a, you know, one and a half billion dollar SBI net program, which was the prior effort, um, was really only possible because, again, commercial technology got to the point where you were able to leverage that very efficiently. But the fear is spending too much money as usual on defense con, like the, whatever, the thousand dollar toilet seat, correct? That's the Yeah, the yeah. Fear. I mean, it's it's a guarantee more or less that um, if left to our own devices, we will spend way more money than we should. You know, oftentimes it, it, it's interesting in government in general, as you're probably aware, Kara, is that um, there are people who think that we should do more with more, like we should have more money and do more things. There are people that think we should do less with less. We should have less budget and do less things. The definition of technology is literally doing more with less. Like, why are we not talking about that? We should be more efficient, more effective, and spend a lot less money. That seems like that's worth working on. Or or better is what you really should be. Better is better. Someone's like, more is not better. Better is better. Yeah, better is is better. Exactly. (laughs) So you, speaking of better, you've been growing a lot lately. You landed a $1 billion contract with the U.S. Special Operations Command last year. And a few months ago, the company reported raising $1.48 billion of new round of funding, which almost doubled your valuation to $8.48 billion. What what has changed? Is it Ukraine or what? Because that's kind of a basic land war. Kind of. Ukraine is an interesting kind of like learning space because it is really the first modern uh, unmanned versus unmanned war. And you could look back at like Armenia and Azerbaijan and how some of that played out, but it was at a much smaller scale than Ukraine. But I, I do I think that has a whole lot to do with Andrew's growth and success? Not really. No, I think. Um, you know, we're we're growing really well. Things are working. I think it's largely because we're building products that are responsive to the needs of the department. And the government, you know, for all of its ills, um, is recession immune. You know, they don't, budgets don't collapse in economic decline. The DOD budget has gone up every year um, for the last, I don't know, five years or more. Um, and I think our customer is still very interested in engaging with us on the things that we're building. So, um, Are more techies you know. more in wanting to get involved in that? And we'll get into people who have objections to that. Yeah. Do you find more techies moving that? Because especially with the contraction in other areas, I don't. I feel like metaverse might not work as well as people thought. For example, this is a perfect place to move if you're in that. Yeah. In that zone. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that there are a lot of people who might have been on the fence where they were like, I believe I want to do something important. I want to do something that matters. Um, I'm not really sure that working on defense is the thing. And now that there's all of this geopolitical stuff that's going on of which, you know, Ukraine is one, the, you know, competition with China is another. I think people are starting to think a little bit more about like, man, maybe this would be an interesting area for me to spend time. That said, I don't actually think there were that many people that had like a huge aversion to working in defense historically. You thought Google, it was just a noisy group of people at Maven, for example, and Google, they didn't want to work on stuff. It certainly are people at Salesforce around the contracts they had with the, um, the Border Patrol people, Amazon, although I think Amazon could hardly care. They, don't, they didn't seem to respond. They're like, we're doing whatever we want. Yeah, Amazon um, and Microsoft have historically <laughs> yeah. had a lot less pushback. I mean, yes, look, the, yeah. the, Google, yeah. the Google protests was like, you know, a single digit percentage of their workforce that signed the letter. And by the way, I think it's awesome. I'm like, I'm really happy that the Google that Google leadership sat back and said, we live in, in a democracy. If we don't want to work with the DOD, we don't have to. So I'm really glad that Google had the ability to pull out. I don't think it was a meaningful <laughs> chunk of their workforce, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, still, it's on them. 
Yeah, it was 4,000 employees. I think it was it was definitely not a tiny thing. But but talk about Ukraine. I literally was approached by some Ukrainians at an embassy recently saying, how can we convince Elon not to geofence us? And I was like, because you're asking me, we know we have a problem. <laughs> it was weird. I was like, I have no idea. And I moved away as quickly as possible. Um, but talk about that idea of, of do you lease it to the governments and can that be problematic? There are a lot of different business models that you know, could evolve to be part of our business. Um, the way that Elon did this was direct. I mean, it wasn't even leased through the government. He, he just, you know, directly provided it. And they took um, it. And they and took they it. Took. And, you know, it has made a huge difference in their ability to deter um, and, and survive. And, you know, I think, uh, again, this goes back to the point that I was making about Google. Like, SpaceX is a private business that operates in a democratic country. Like, he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. Um, and, and I think that there are positives and negatives to this. You know, the obvious positive is that, man, I love transparent democratic societies. The negative to it is that, um, it's a lot harder to muster the resources of the state to, to go after things. Um, and so, you know, in our work in, in Ukraine, we are, uh, selling, uh, through ally and partner nations, um, which is the way that almost all the technology is being inserted into the country. Um, and, you know, I think, the, the opportunity um, for the Ukrainians is to get access to tech that they're not getting through um, the, like, big pipe main channels um, from, what, from the what, U.S. So to do it directly, you mean? To do it directly like Elon with Starlink? Is that what yeah, you're I mean, and, and the, there are probably other examples. I don't know all the specifics, but by and large, almost everything of import to Ukraine is being provided through allied and partner governments. It's not being it's not being provided on direct sales. Yes, no, I get that. I get yeah. that. I think well, I just put a pin in the, in the Elon thing is that I think the issue is it's like you just can't have one person decide like if he doesn't like war. Okay, then whatever. It's it's difficult. They shouldn't be buying that way. That's I think the problem. But what is and what Anderol Tech is being used there? Um, we have some uh, autonomous systems, um, aerial systems that are that are being used in country. Um, you know, Palmer, our founder of the company, was just out in uh, late last year doing trainings and, you know, learning more about characterizing the environment. Um, it's a really difficult airspace. As you might be aware, the Russians have spent a lot of time and money in the past decades developing electronic warfare capabilities to do things like interfere with radio communications, deny GPS. And so we've been dedicated to sending team out to characterize that environment and you know, better harden our technology against, um, against Russian interference. We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation, and that moment we finally get a chance to relax— but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from the Harvard Business Review. I made a career out of taking to task some of the tech industry's biggest players. And honestly, some of these guys, and they're all guys, really had no clue what they were doing, and they could probably have benefited from some of the resources available at Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is a top source for smart management thinkers. Cultivated by some of the greatest minds in business, the Harvard Business Review is a trove of rigorous insight and best practices. It's more than just the flagship magazine, too. You can find the same level of expertise on hbr.org, and for just $10 a month, a subscription unlocks unlimited access to a variety of resources like hundreds of articles, podcasts, newsletters, case studies, and so much more. I use HBR all the time to look up all kinds of cases, and not just in tech, and also listen to their podcasts, I look at their newsletters, and I 
I really, 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 most of all, like the articles, which have a different perspective that I might have to give me ideas. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA right now to get 10% off your subscription. Again, to save 10% off your HBR subscription, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter the promo code CARA. Let's move to China. We have just a few more things to talk about. Uh, one of our biggest adversaries, no question, a lot of tech the world relies on is made in Chinese factory. Um, probably and or all things, possibly. I don't know. Um, talk about them as an adversary and where they stand right now. Yeah. Going back to some of the earlier points, like, you know, civil military fusion is a challenge that we are going to face in the future. Um, you know, the the tech that they have access to is the tech that the their entire technology industry is building. Um, and they do have massive advantages with critical natural resources, not only manufacturing, but access to critical materials, um, which has been a big part of their Belt and Road strategy. Um, and there are a lot of manufactured parts, electronics, mechanical parts, that you can basically only get in China. And we've gone through a detailed scrub of our entire supply chain at Anderil. We are almost completely certain that we're approaching zero reliance on on Chinese parts. But the fact that as a defense contractor, as a company that's dedicated to this, like it is very, very hard to figure out, you know, the subcomponents of subcomponents of subcomponents that you're relying on uh, is a statement to just how enmeshed we are across our entire technology industry. Um, and this is certainly very, very concerning. Um, and it's something that gives them a tremendous advantage, regardless of like the end result of the technology, like the weapons platform development that happens at the end of that. But what does the U.S. need to make up? Because on one hand, you have the argument that we need national heroes, right? And Mark Zuckerberg has made this argument of why he needs to be so big and unfettered, because China's doing this. I interviewed John Cantor recently, and he said, you know what we need to be? Not like them, not top-down, uh, tight. We need to do from innovation. Talk about what we need to to make up the ground and what can be done to do so. Totally, yeah. I think this goes to the common argument that you make, Kara, around G or me. I think it's a, it's a bad argument. Mark Zuckerberg said essentially G or me to me, which I, he said it's either me or him, and I'm like, I don't like either. I don't like <laughs> right. him more. I definitely don't like him more, but yeah, I'm not so thrilled with you either. Yeah, we should hold ourselves to a different standard, for sure. Um, and, you know, they're, they're spending a lot of time and money um, basically indebting the entire developing world uh, to their uh, authoritarian whims. And, you know, not only are they building advanced strategic capabilities like ballistic missiles and, you know, space lasers and EW, command and control, but they're also building up massive conventional forces. Like, you know, their ground forces, they have the world's largest Navy, huge Coast Guard. Um, and so I think, like, our approach uh, should be fundamentally different. Like, we should have more accountability. We should have more transparency. Um, we should be willing to, you know, admit that we're not beyond reproach. We're going to make mistakes. Um, and, and I think that part of that is leveraging our innovation ecosystem um, to do things that are, again, advancing ethics rather than deteriorating privacy and, you know, having a domestic surveillance state. What do we need to do then? Because there should be some public-private togetherness on this because, you know, there's a lot of saber rattling, but it's more noise than actual. What if you could do something? You're still in the intelligence agencies. You're still in the government. What should they be doing? And then what should a technology company be doing? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure it's entirely saber rattling. I do think there's more beneath the surface than the American people are aware of. But I also think free market competition is really good. And that's probably the thing that I would encourage the DOD to do is we're going to get more innovative products. We're going to get the involvement of the right people to work on these things if people believe that there's a path to actually doing the work. And so I think it's all about competition. So I can't not ask about the Chinese uh, balloon that the U.S. shot down over the Atlantic on a few weeks ago and then these multiple unidentified objects. Uh, is 
Is this a good example of defense tech? Is this good for your business? You know, I think the hardest thing about this balloon conversation that I've been having kind of ad nauseum for the last four days. I know, it's ridiculous. CNN is the ancient aliens network now. Go ahead. ahead. I I hope that it's aliens. We both do. Man, I would be so happy if it was. Um, But but no, I I think the reality is, is like, we don't know. And there are certainly people that have more information than us, and maybe we will eventually know, but it's really hard to say, like, we did the right thing, we did the wrong thing, because I don't know. I I don't have access to all that information. Um, That said, um, I think understanding and characterizing a potential threat is what you need to be able to defend and deter against that threat. And it's obvious that we don't have, like, a great practice for doing this right now. You know, in 1998, there was a balloon that flew over Canada and um, they eventually shot it down. Um, but they, before they fired a missile to shoot it down, they shot a thousand rounds of ammunition and couldn't hit it. Um, and so, you know, we learned from that and we said, next time we do it, we're going to send up an F-22 and we're going to shoot, you know, an AIM-9 to shoot it down. And, you know, there's like a cost benefit analysis that you need to go through there, um, especially for like the flight time for, you know, putting multiple F-22s up in the air. Honestly, um, Trey, I think I could have shot it down, but go ahead. <laughs> I would love to, I would love to see you standing out of your, your house. <laughs> I wanted to be in the military and I couldn't be. I wanted to be in the military. I am gay. I could not be. It's a sad, sad loss for our American military, but go ahead. It is a sad loss for America. I'd be I wish... a fucking admiral general right now, but you, go ahead. You would be amazing, for I know, sure. I would be. I would be. <laughs> so good. So, so, yeah, I think, is it good for our business? I mean, not right now. We're not building tech to shoot down balloons, but... Um, right, but it's about defense. It's defense. Yeah. It's the same thing you're talking about. Characterizing a threat, figuring out if there's a really efficient and inexpensive way to do something, uh, and then deterring. You know, this is part of it is like you want you don't want China to believe that they can do it. So if you have a very easy way of uh, eliminating the threat, it's it's going to stop the activity. That's you yeah know, the the whole purpose. Uh, is, of deterrence. Have you all sat like, oh, this is a business opportunity. Here we are, because I think we look like dumbasses at this point. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had like a a clear conversation about, you know, how it gets done. By the way, this is like Palmer's favorite thing is sitting around and talking about how to solve for a very, very specific, potentially very niche problem. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it seems like something that I should uh, jam with Palmer on this week and see if he has any good ideas. He should. All right. I have some if you'd like to call me. But speaking of Palmer, you know, the politics has dragged Palmer into the supporting of Donald Trump. He should support anyone he wants, by the way. Um, Obviously, Peter Thiel has been a supporter of Donald Trump and served on a transition team, um, has been very active. How much does that um, affect running a company like yours? Because you are cooperating with the Biden administration. You have very tight ties to them, too. So how do you how do you manage that uh, yourself and the company? Because presumably you don't want to be dragged into we're the right wing defense company or whatever. Yeah, I mean, look, it. Anderl isn't just Palmer. It's, you know, over a thousand people. Um, even across the founding team, there's like, there are Democrats, there are Republicans. You know, it it doesn't really matter. You know, defense is, uh, unbeknownst to many people, particularly as you pointed out in Silicon Valley, defense is a really bipartisan topic area. Um, you know, we, we certainly don't lack for support um, on both sides of the aisle, which is great. Um you know, I think on the like dialogue side of things, I one of like my core personal values is that I care deeply about discussion and debate. Um, and I think, you know, that's why I, you know, was open to coming here and talking on with you on your podcast. And and I think that like, you know, what you see sometimes is like, you know, Joe Biden like refusing to do the interview with uh, Fox ahead of the Super Bowl. Trump did this during his administration as well. Um, I think it leads to like a really unhealthy acceleration into tribalism. Um, and I think this is both like it's a responsibility of um, uh, people that are engaging with the world, but it's also a responsibility of media. Like we should be building trust, um, not building walls uh, between each other. Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, only and there's smart walls, but go ahead. <laughs> right. Smart walls between each other may be OK. Um, but no, there has to be trust. And, you know, I think um, it would be awesome to get back to the point where um you know, it was a, a healthier relationship for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you think about that, does it affect your business though, when you get dragged into this? 
how do you solve from that problem besides yeah. talk to Kara Swisher, for example? Yeah, I mean, to to the point that you just made, like, actually, uh, I am not a Trump supporter either. Um, but a lot of the points that Biden made in his State of the Union were just Trump points. Like he talked about Made in America, the Chips Act, resource insecurity, competition with China. It's like they've, these things have actually become bipartisan since they were they were Trump points. But um, do, does the politics affect us? No. Not, not at all. Like we are, I don't think anyone in the company sees this as being a right-wing company. Um, we have we have investors that are super far left. We have investors that are on the right. Um, as I said, our founding team is not even politically united. Um, and I think that's really important, like especially in, a, in an area like defense is that you want that tension. Um, and, and I think that's made us better, actually, not worse. All right, so you got no answers on the the balloons, Kara. No, Zero he answers. Know. He doesn't, none of us know. I know he doesn't know. Nobody knows. It is a business opportunity, though. I'll tell you that. He's very diplomatic in your questions about what it was like to be in U.S. government. Yeah, in was. the bureaucracy, they're his clients now, so he can't really tell us. Yeah, but I mean, anyone who's you know, I knew Ash Carter, who just died recently, yeah. unfortunately, unfortunately, very early. Yeah. Um, and I talked to, to a lot of people, and they do understand the bureaucracy of what it's become, and it's because there isn't competition. He's a hundred percent right. These primes that take over everything. Lockheed Martin, et cetera. They quash competition. And the same thing at the top of technology. It's the same yeah. thing. It's where the, the startups have the best ideas and they're not part of it. And that's what makes our nation great is startups and innovation. And so- But you know what the thing is? Is that these startups become primes? I mean, I mean, Elon yes, was I a guy agree. just doing innovation with the government and getting a little loan, and now he's Elon Musk and yes. he's running SpaceX, Tesla. Then we should be giving more money to more Elon Musks who aren't quite so crazy. But, yeah, and we should know, be taxing. Yeah, well, we should be taxing. on the other side. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But I mean, we need to be thinking more. And I get that these are complex systems and they need to be locked down. And you don't want all these points of weakness where people can take care of it. But there is not, nothing better than innovation, which is startups doing things and coming up with great new ideas. Listen, I have a real problem with Elon Musk right now, but what he did at SpaceX was critically important to space travel. It was. We need 10 of those. We don't need just him. And there, if there's not as smart people on this planet all over as Elon Musk, I would eat my hat. There are smart people everywhere, and we've got to uh, push them into it. Don't eat it just yet, Carol. We will find some. I won't. I won't. There are. The other interesting thing to me was his whole conversation about kind of efficient warfare because I had studied international law and it's a conundrum because if you make war more efficient and you can kill people with drone strikes, it becomes very asymmetric, right? And so the cost of um, Father Brian Eyre, who was a professor of mine at the Kennedy School, who I think used to counsel intelligence officers on mm -hmm. killing and yeah, the ethics of in war, yeah. yeah, and ethics of war. If you can take out individuals with technology, all of a sudden the costs of war become very little, and that creates grave consequences for the calculation of when and how you strike. And so there is this other kind of moral question, this bigger moral question. It could be better for for U.S. soldiers, but is it actually better for the world? Well, you know, right now we're just like spray, spraying and praying kind of thing. I think they're the kind of things <laughs> you saw. Uh, well, we just throw it down and we just hope we don't hit too many people. I mean, really, yes, there are better ways. Yes. And, you know, if there's going to be war, there are people, there's going to be war. And I'm, I'm so sorry to say that, but it's true. And you don't like to discuss it, but boy, it's better if you if it's more precise as possible. Well, I think what he what is interesting about what Andrew is doing is the deterrent quality of it. And I think that the future of warfare is going to be a lot of deterrence and surveillance, and that already you see that in parts of the world. And then hopefully, you know, minimal skirmishes, but a lot of targeted strikes. Yeah. But more deterrence, not just not just physical deterrence, is that we're going to take out all your internet. We're going to take out all your this. We're going to yeah, targeted strikes. That's right. Yeah. Like there's more ways to pressure people than just killing them. There's all kinds of ways, and so it's interesting. All right. Well, this gives our audience a lot to think about. And while they do, do you want to read us the credits, Kara? Yeah. Today's show is produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Christian Castro Rossell, and Rafaela Seward. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a smart wall. If not, you get a stick with a camera on it. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher, and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Thursday with more.